Welcome to Biographicon. Welcome to this latest episode of Biographicon, an exploration of the forgotten but influential figures who made the north of England what it is today. This episode features Anne Fisher, born in the Cumbrian village of Lawton in 1719, who went on to become a key figure in Newcastle-upon-Tyne's cultural enlightenment. Our guide is Dr Barbara Crosby, Associate Professor of Early Modern British History at the University of Durham, who has spent many years researching Fisher, who was Britain's first female grammarian of modern English. So here we are in the Barbara's office at the University of Durham. And I suppose the first question I've got to ask is, why are you so interested in Anne Fisher? Well, it, it started as a project looking at age relations. Um, well, in particular, looking at a generational divide that I'd found in, in Newcastle um, in the 18th century. And I decided that I really needed to understand childhood and how children had been brought up to try and understand that division. Um, And I was reading the local newspapers, um, trying to figure out what school was like, what sort of school books children were reading and the like, and I became increasingly aware of this person called A. Fisher. Um, And it was evident that this person was incredibly influential in terms of the education of the area, and yet I'd never heard of them. And the more I dug around, the more I realised that this A. Fisher was actually Anne Fisher. And then eventually I realised that she was Anne Slack. And... To my surprise, I'd been reading a newspaper that she was intimately involved in, that she published alongside her husband, um, and I'd heard of Thomas Slack, who published the Chronicle, but for some reason his wife had disappeared from the records, and it became a bit of a quest to find out why, and to put that right. And Fisher is what she published all of her educational books in the name of. So that was her public name. Um, Whereas, you know, once she was married in 1751, um, then she was Mrs Slack. Um, um, But she kept her anonymity by publishing as A. Fisher rather than Anne Fisher, in fact. Initially, um, Thomas Slack was working as a printer for uh, uh, another Newcastle publisher, Isaac Thompson, who was the the, um, publisher of Anne's grammar um, and uh, there's every chance that her her husband-to-be actually published her book before they were married and they worked very close so her her, her school moved to um, St Nicholas's churchyard which was literally round the corner from Isaac Thompson's um, print workshop at the top of the side so they were very close to each other physically and I think there's every chance he actually was the man who who worked the press, who produced her first books. Um, They opened their own printing business in 1763, and the printing press, which which was at the bottom of the big market, so not a stone's throw from where they'd met each other. So you said that you kept coming across this name, A. Fisher. How? What was she? I think the, the most extraordinary thing that she did was that at, at the age of 26, she published a book entitled A New Grammar. Um, and 
Uh, I mean, for a start, grammar wasn't a subject that was taught to girls particularly, let alone a girl, write a woman writing a grammar. Um, so she was definitely pushing the boundaries of gender expectation by producing a book about English grammar. But it was much more than that. Um, at the time, grammar was taught in grammar schools um, in the medium of Latin to boys of, from a wealthier background. Um, and so the first time that you in encountered, um, you know, um, grammatical structure was in a language that wasn't your mother tongue. And, I mean, this is something that happened to me, actually. When I went, when I went to school in the 70s, it was deemed to be um, unhelpful to teach young children grammar. So the first time I came across the word verb was in a French class. And I found that incredible. It was definitely a handicap. Um, so I can empathise with the fact that people were only being taught grammar in Latin. So there was a movement in the 18th century to teach grammar in English. But for the most part, this was being taught to um, poorer children who were deemed to never going to, that, you know, that were never expected to rise beyond um, schooling at the age of seven or ten and certainly wouldn't go to a grammar school. And what Anna, Anne Fisher did that was so innovative was she took those ideas... And she realised that she could write a, a grammar book that was as sophisticated as any Latin grammar, that was designed for both female and male students, and um, wasn't it provided an education that was as sophisticated and as in depth as any Latin class, and by doing so, she helped to improve literacy rates um, in the 18th century. By, by encouraging this idea that learning English was important. And English started to, to appear in the curricula for schools, uh, not just across the North East, but across England more generally. And she was a really um, at the forefront of this movement, I think. So they claim that she's the first female grammarian of, of English, modern English, is true? Yes, there was Elstop, who'd written a grammar of Old English, um, and she was actually also um, born and brought up in Newcastle. But this was the first person who tried to write a, a grammar of spoken English, a, a practical and useful rather than an erudite and intellectual grammar. Um, and, you know, a lot of, 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 I think, what I find most impressive about Anne Fisher is she was incredibly practical. This was a working wife and mother who produced grammar that she taught. She actually taught in a, a girls' school that she ran. And, and one of the, the most endearing things for me is she didn't only run the school during the day. She also provided evening classes for young ladies who were otherwise engaged in working activity during the day. So this was very much about self-improvement and giving people the opportunity to better themselves intellectually as well as um, you know academically and 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 potentially in terms of employment opportunities. So, so would it be fair to say that Anne's uh, grammar would be the most popular grammar uh, read in the north of England in this period? I think there is a, a sense in which it was um, regionally uh, a more important text than it was. Um, you know, in, in a national context. Um, and, and maybe one of the, the good examples of that would be to look at the influence that she had on the school system. What, what she produced was an easy-to-use English grammar that could be used um, it, within the domestic setting or in a, in a school environment. But what it actually provided was um, a, a blueprint for somebody who wanted to set themselves up as a teacher who didn't have a grammar school education, who could then teach teach English 
to grammar, you know, to, to a um, sophisticated level, step by step, following the lessons that were presented in the book. So it, it actually democratised the opportunity to be a teacher. And if you compare... Um, um, the the schools that were advertising in the Newcastle newspapers with schools advertising, for instance, in the Oxford area, where you might expect there to be a significant amount of learning going on outside of the um, learned institution, what you find is, um, in, in the case of girls in particular, there is almost no female education beyond learning how to sew and knit whereas if you if you look in Newcastle there is increasingly from Anne Fisher onwards a growing number of young women setting up schools teaching English grammar and it's not just um you know it's also grammar school masters who are teaching English um, on an evening to boys who are not destined for a grammar school education or for young ladies and um, writing schools in um, South Shields who only ever taught how to read are suddenly now teaching how to write as well and and the adverts are quoting from Fisher's preface so we can see that direct influence um, and 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 book clearly has some northern vowels within the pronunciation guides and the like and we could say that that's you know it's colloquial it's northern but in actual fact in many respects it's actually just english and it's a, it's a closer to um you know anglo-saxon english than um the, the 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 vowel pronunciations in the south um and she has a quote in a new grammar um, where she suggests, I, for my part, have the satisfaction to be assured by experience that any person of a tolerable capacity may, in a short time, be learned to write English independently of the knowledge of any other tongue, and that as properly and correctly as if for the press. And what we can hear, you know, when I first came across this, I sort of cringed at the fact that she'd used learned rather than taught. But, like, why shouldn't she? That would be the way people spoke and taught this, um, you know, very Latin and Southern in, 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 in that context. Um, and so I think, you know, we've got to remember that during the 18th century, there was something of a battleground over grammar. It wasn't standardised. It hadn't been a, a correct form of grammar. It didn't exist yet. And she was um, introducing her interpretation of how that grammar should be. Um, and so there are sort of northern elements to it. And at times she does actually emphasise that it's um, a grammar that's taught in the... Um, in, in the northern counties, it's the grammar that's used in the northern regions. And yet, at the same time, it's actually a grammar that evidently has a market nationally. It's always, it, it, from its outset, from the outset, it's published in London as well as in Newcastle. All of her books are simultaneously produced in both places. Um, and she makes claims about the fact that it has a, a, a national context. So in the preface to a spelling dictionary, which was published in 1774, Fisher claimed that all the best English schoolmasters in the kingdom consider mine the quickest and most effectual mode of inculcating the knowledge of the English language. So we can see it might be a bold claim, but in truth, based on sales, I think it's fair to say that a significant number of them did. And, and we do see plagiarism. You know, we do see people producing her grammar under a different name in other regional areas. So it's not just in London that this has a market. And so even if she is using some northern pronunciation, it's not preventing it having a use in, um, you know, um, in areas where they may have different vowel pronunciations to the ones we have in the north.
So where did all of this come from? I mean, what was Anne's background? We actually know very little about Anne before she started to publish in 1745. Um, we know she was born in um, a tiny hamlet called Old Scale, just outside of Lawton in Cumbria. Her father was a, a, a yeoman farmer, so a relatively wealthy farmer um, from um, Old Scale. She first appears in the records when she publishes a new grammar in, and advertises it in the newspapers in Newcastle in 1745. And alongside the advertisement for her a newspaper, there also appears a notice to say that she's opening a girls' school um, to teach grammar, um, which is based at the end of Denton Chair, um, opposite what is now the entrance to the Lyttonville, um, but at the time the, the Lyttonville um, didn't exist. And in terms of a background, we know very little. Uh, uh, her first publication, The New Grammar, when it, was, when it was initially advertised, was advertised entirely anonymously, and it was linked to the author of um, A Child's Christian Education, which was um, a chap called Daniel Fisher. And there's been a lot of speculation about whether Daniel and Anne were in any way related to each other, which seems relatively likely, given that I've now discovered that he was made a curate of the local church, which was literally three fields away from where Anne grew up, um, shortly before she appears in Newcastle. And by the time she does appear in Newcastle, Daniel Fisher is teaching in Wickham. So I think there's every chance she moved across the hills with Daniel as an older cousin or young uncle. And maybe this is where she actually got some of her education from in the first place, if there were, you know, well-educated individuals in the family who she could, she could um, um, gain that knowledge from. Um, but people who've looked, again, you know, I'm not a linguistic expert, I'm a social historian, so I'm interested in her, you know, in, in the practicalities of her life. Um, but, but there are linguists who have looked at her grammar in depth and looked at both her books and um, Daniel Fisher's later books and come to the conclusion that if Daniel contributed anything to a new grammar, it was incredibly limited and that in actual fact this was at, at least 90 probably 100 percent Anne's own work um so um, I, I think it's fair to say i'm so you know leaning on other people's um, greater knowledge than mine it's fair to say that this was Anne's book but she linked it to daniel fisher because for a young woman to be publishing a grammar wasn't it wasn't the done thing and and had she actually put her own name to it it would it would undoubtedly have um suffered in terms of its reputation and even when she did openly advertise it as by A. Fisher and sign the preface as A. Fisher, um, even at that point she never gendered herself and it's only much later in her life that she slips into occasionally using a female pronoun in a preface that gives away the fact that she is a woman but, but um, I'm never really sure if that was intentional. And, that, and the grammar is really her, I, I know that she wrote other books, but that's really her, the book that she's best known for, isn't it? Yes, I think it's also the, the most um, um, innovative and it, it's the biggest achievement in terms of, of publication, in part because of its saleability. You know, this was a book that was first published in 1745. It appears in um, at least 18 different editions, um, more than more than um, 30 print runs, of official print runs. It's plagiarised in several towns um, um, across Britain, and it's still being published decades after she dies. It's said to be the 
fourth most regularly republished grammar book in Britain during the 18th century. And yet, she's not known. The other grammar, grammar writers um, are all men. They're all well-educated, university-educated men, and their names are all recognised, whereas until very recently, Anne has just slipped under the radar. Why do you suppose it was that she's vanished from the records? In part, I think it's because of the position of women in the 18th century. So we have a situation where, um, because of because of the legal position of, of married women, their property was owned by their husband. Any business that they conducted was done in their husband's name. And therefore, if you go to the archives, what you will find is information about the men and the businesses that they ran or profited from. And... Unless unless a woman outlives her husband, then any property she owns at death is her husband's property and it is mentioned in his will. Whereas occasionally you'll find a, a, a widowed woman who has um, property in a will and then you can see that she was engaged in business in her own name. But but for married women, that isn't the case. And because, because Anne died before her husband... Um, most of what we can find out about her actually is, is recorded in the name of her husband. And her husband, Thomas Slack, wasn't he from Cumberland as well? He was from a little bit north, closer to Carlisle. Um, and there seems to be um, something of an expat community in, in the Newcastle area um, who are very um, connected to the, the, the literary culture in the area. Um, and interestingly, their, their son-in-law, who eventually does take over the business with their daughter, um, is also from, from Cumberland. Um, and so is their um, publisher in London, who they're most closely connected to, is also from very close to where um, they grew up. And... I would think that there's a close chance that there's something of family connections between them. Um, and in fact, it may even be that Thomas, Thomas Buick is, is connected to them through family connections as well. So Anne Fisher's son-in-law, Solomon Hodgson, may well actually be related to Thomas Buick through the maternal line. And I think, that, you know, this is one of those things, that it's, because it's through the maternal line, the names don't, remain and so because of that it gets harder and harder to trace these connections um, but lots of lots of the individuals who we think of as being from Newcastle actually spent their early years um, in, in, in Cumberland um, and it, it serves as a reminder that while Newcastle was um, at its most dynamic maybe and growing rapidly and making a name for itself on the global stage it was a welcoming place to people from outside. And I think often when places are at their most dynamic, it is because of that openness to, to, to new ideas, to different people, to a, a milieu of discussion about things that, if you're too insular, um, would be closed down. And I think it's one of the things that's most exciting about 18th century Newcastle, really. Wouldn't this kind of cross-county relationship, communication capacity, would that not have been an important part in development of their business? A large part of what made that business so successful, it seems to me, is their contacts across the region. And while the two existing newspapers in Newcastle at the time, the Newcastle Journal and the Newcastle Current, um, had extensive networks of sales on the East Coast, 
what the Chronicle did was introduce an, an extended, extensive network of contacts across to the Carlisle area. And they stole a match on their, their competitors because they could do this. And the, 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 net, the, the, the trade routes that they sold their newspapers through were also the same routes that they gained advertising through so somebody would send an advert back with the newspaper man and and the fee for advertising but then also if somebody wanted to buy any goods that were advertised in the newspaper they also traveled with the newsman and you see um in in the the 1770s and early 1780s a level of um um rather um a level of skullduggery really with them pinching the the, the newcastle's newspaper men underhandedly pinching each other's newsmen because those trade networks are so valuable by this time. Um, but it's not just trade that's moving up and down those those connections. It's also ideas and communication and that you know that whole sense in which um, communication networks are opening up. It's a time when all of the turnpike roads are being produced and and mobility is increasing increasingly quick so you know you can you can buy a newspaper in in london uh, sorry you can buy a london newspaper in newcastle that was printed two days earlier by the 1750s to 1770s um so there's this huge increase in the amount of communication that's going on um and the newspapers are central to that but the the, the printing press becomes a sort of cultural hub. Um, in the, the, the 19th century, those who have still have living memory of people who frequented the place um, talk about it being somewhere where the slacks... And, you know, at that point, they're very clear that it's Mr and Mrs Slack. It's both Thomas and Anne who were involved in the printing press. But this is described as a literary club, a place where um, politicians and literary folk and authors and um, intellectuals... Are, um, um, uh, and um, interested fellow travellers congregate to talk to each other. And it's one of the sorts of places where people were meeting that created the impetus for organisations and societies, m most notably the Lit and Phil, that was developed by their children's generation. Do we know who worked in the print shop? So we know about one of the people that the Slacks employed, um, and we know a reasonable amount about him because... Um, he made such a striking impact on the people that he met, um, and that's um, Gilbert Gray. So he was initially from Scotland, um, but um, and educated there in a slightly different educational um, um, system to England. And it was often it was often said that people lower down the social scale that came from Scotland to Newcastle came with more. Um, um, intellectual ability because the school system was was um, more equal um, in, in terms of who had access um, and so he, he came to to Newcastle in the early 1750s and by 1755 he was working for the slacks as a as a bookbinder and a proofreader and eventually a warehouseman um, and um, one of the people who writes about him is Thomas Buick in his um, memoirs and um, Buick recounts using that um, workshop as somewhere where he had access to texts when he was a teenager. So uh, when he was a young apprentice who didn't have the money to buy books, he could go to Gilbert's workshop and read the books that he was that, that he was 
um, binding, um, and that this was really influential on him. And one of the people he met there, who was, because uh, apparently it was a place where young men would, would congregate, in part because Gilbert himself had two sons of, of their age, so they, they would um, go to meet their friends and hang out at the workshop with, you know, their dad's workshop, in effect, um, reading books. And one of the people that Buick met in, in that situation was, was Thomas Spence. So, you know, that friendship struck antagonistic friendship between between Buick and Spence that was, you know, a long-lived friendship started in in the the, the workshop of, of um, Anne Fisher's bookbinder. Um, and rather interestingly, that the, the friendships are also quite clearly business contacts. So I don't think people made that clear distinction. It was one of those, you know... Um, one of those situations where a little bit of nepotism went a long way. And if you had a good friend who happened to do something, then that was clearly the person you could go to if, if you wanted for um, anything. And, and, and Buick was an incredibly gifted individual. So, you know, Anne uh, um, would, in, in later life, there's evidence that Anne was using um, Buick to produce the type for her print. Um, and so was Thomas, when Thomas Spence wanted specific type for his um, dictionary because it was written in a vernacular language and he'd made up extra letters to uh, allow that to happen. And um, he went to, to to Buick to also have those those cut. So you know we can see clear connections between com a, a very tight, I think quite a tight geographic community. You know, um, Buick was based in Amen Corner, um, it, that is you know. Are, are literally the other side of the church to where Anne had had her school. It's almost next door to where Thomas Slack had been a printer. And when they open the shop, they're at the bottom of the big market um, in a place that's either called Union Street or Middle Street, depending on, on who's describing it, um, which is um, literally um, opposite Highbridge. Um, at, at the bottom of what is still the big market today. So we're talking of a very small geographic spot, and I think these people must have been, you know, and, and they must have been walking past the shop, and, and they all must have known each other incredibly well. And, you know, it was absolutely at the centre of what was the, 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 the trade area of Newcastle at the time. That was the bustling centre of Newcastle. So they were... Um, you know, ideally positioned for for people to to, to venture into the shop, um, and it was evidently somewhere where people socialised as much as they um, um, consumed print and 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 the other things. I mean, they, they they didn't just sell they didn't just sell books and newspapers. They sold quack medicines. They sold lottery tickets. In fact, their foreman won um, won the lottery at some point, and Anne complains in a letter to the poet John Cunningham that, 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 that Bob is less likely to be helpful at the moment because since he won the lottery, he clearly doesn't need the money so much and he's forgotten who it is who sold him the ticket. So, you know, we can, we can see a very um, um, familiar sense of friendship amongst these people. You know, they weren't just working together. This, you know, business, business contacts and family friends were one in the same thing. Is there an association or a connection with Anne Slack or Anne Fisher and Thomas Spence as both, you know, Newcastle-based? Yes, so there is a connection between Spence and, and Anne Fisher. Um, Fisher published her grammar in 1745, and some three decades later, the, the young Thomas Spence published his grammar. And um, 
on the outside you can see you know from the outside you can see something of a, a, a shared interest in that Fisher was attempting to produce a grammar that was more accessible to um, both girls and boys lower down the social scale than a Latin education was offered to um, and again Spence you know um, by the 1770s was producing a grammar that again was attempting to um, give access to, to a, a, a grammar education to children even lower down the social scale. Um, but if we look deeper, we can see an even clearer connection because there are grammar experts who've looked in depth at these books who suggest that Spence directly plagiarised Fisher's grammar. And plagiarised is a very strong word. In the 18th century, it's not really a concept people took too seriously. And borrowed, I think, would be fairer. So he borrowed ideas and interpreted them and added to them and put them into his own vernacular spelling form, which he thought would make it easier for people who spoke with a strong accent to be able to, to grasp. Who do you think would have been visiting the print shop? Would that be Montague, for example? Yeah, well, I mean, we have no direct evidence that Elizabeth Montague ever actually frequented the shop, but, but she certainly had made acquaintance with Anne Fisher at, at some point and in some context. And Elizabeth Montague is... is um, you know, one of the major blue stockings, the literary women of, of, of the century. She spent a reasonable amount of the year just outside of Newcastle and was a close friend, it would seem, of Anne Fisher. Anne writes about her very warmly. So it's, it's Anne that creates the connection between um, Elizabeth Montague and the poet John Cunningham. And you can see in the responses in John Cunningham's letters to Anne Fisher how important this connection is to his own sense of, um, uh, his own self-esteem and his sense of ability, that, that this, this very important literary figure is taking his work seriously, actually evidently matters. And it's that link with Anne Fisher that creates this, that, you know, without this rather remarkable woman, those connections would never have been possible. And those letters also show that she really knew her business, didn't she? She describes the, pro the, the, the working process of the printing industry, if you like, very closely. She, she, wasn't, she was hands-on. Um, yes, she understood the business. So in terms of thinking about exactly how hands-on she is, it's something I've thought about a reasonable amount. Um, it, it, undoubtedly, she micromanaged projects she thought were important, um, and um, John Cunningham's book of poetry was definitely something that she was very hands-on with. She understood the process. She understood, um, you know, the, how long it would take for the paper to dry, and um, what the binding process would be, and how long that would take. Um, so she could keep John Cunningham in, in front informed of the progress of his book and exactly when he would be able to see the first copies. Um, but I think, I mean, if we go back to the, the, the early stage of her career when she first married a printer in, in the 1750s, if at that time Thomas Slack was living above the shop um, in Isaac Thompson's print house, then it may well be that she would have had to muck in and she would have had hands-on experience of working the press or helping her husband with the, the you know, hanging of the paper or whatever. Um, but I think by the time they opened the printing press in, in the 60s, um, in 63, um, she, she, by this time, she'd published several books. They'd earned a reasonable amount of money. They were um, established in, in their business. And 
It's not entirely clear that she ever actually lived above or next to the shop. Um, certainly when she died, she lived um, in a residential house in Newgate, so um, not above the shop. Um, and in their later life, they, they had foremen, they employed bookbinders and proofreaders and warehousemen and the like. So, you know, I think it's fair to say that both of the slacks probably stepped back increasingly during their lives. But we've also got to bear in mind something that I haven't mentioned yet at all, is that um, dur during her married life, Anne um, had nine live births. S all daughters, six of whom lived to adulthood, um, and they came very rapidly. So in, by the time she'd been married for three years, she had two children, four years she had three children. Um, and this, you can see this affecting the way in which her, her career develops. So she steps back from teaching. When she marries, she immediately has three children, one, one a year after each. Um, and then she starts publishing. And that's something that you can do around looking after your children. Um, and you can see breaks in childbirth coinciding with productions of new books and the like. So you can see that this is a working mother who's having to fit in life around the, the requirements of, of um, having small children. But everything that she does, she must have done pre she must have been pregnant for most of her adult life. You know, she gives she gives birth to nine live babies in, in sixteen years. And we don't know how miscarriages were common. So we don't know they're the only pregnancies that she had. Um but I think this also underlies a different element of hidden female labour that we don't often think about. Women working women are not only working, but they're also working whilst heavily pregnant often. They're, they're working with small children around them. Um, but on top of all of that, chances are there's hidden labour in, in the Slack's house because Anne no doubt had domestic help. And these are women whose labour we rarely see in the records at all. So I, I think it is fair to say that she was very hands-on in terms of her understanding of her business. She she wasn't a wallflower. She wasn't just an assistant in a husband's shop. She wasn't just you know the you know the the tentative female shopkeeper who could talk a bit of literary interest to people. She was someone who a serious practical printer who understood her trade. But I think chances are both her and Thomas were increasingly employers rather than than actually physically working in the shop themselves. But she definitely brought a spirit of entrepreneurism to her business, didn't she? Um, you know, when I've thought about her contribution to the, the, the Slacks business, you know, I think it's important to think about the fact that she was the more entrepreneurial of the couple. So when they met, um, she was already running her own um, school and she published her own book that she was using to teach grammar in her school while he was working for someone else as a printer. Um, when, they f when, when books are first published with the Slack imprint, um, there are one or two that are published that are, 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 are autonomous to, to Anne, but the vast majority of what is published is actually Anne's publications that then are being published as T, Slack and Co. So she's producing the goods that are actually the, the beginning of their printing enterprise. And then when they open the shop, um, the, one of the first major um, ventures that they engage in is the, the production of the Newcastle Chronicle in 1764. And... In the flyer for the newspaper when they're advertising their new venture, Anne's influence is evident from the outset. So this, this not only is it advertised as um, 
promoting political news and business news and um, things of literary interest to gentlemen, but the flyer also has a paragraph that is directly um, focused at the, the ladies. The ladies, whose appropriation it will always be our highest ambition to merit, may be assured this paper will not be so much confined to political subjects, but that there will be published therein several original pieces of polite literature. No publication whatever being on more extensive and useful plan. And and here we also see a clear link to John Cunningham again because um, it, it's suggested by um, the Slack's daughter, um, Sarah Hodgson, or Sarah Slack, um, in later life, that the connection between the poet John Cunningham and her parents was actually um, um, very closely connected to the production of the Chronicle. And it was because they had a mutual desire here. He was producing pastoral poetry that they wanted to put in their newspaper, in part because they thought it would attract a wider audience that would include their female readership. And it is one of the things that really sets their newspaper apart from competition in the area. Um, and so the, there was a, a friendship developed around a mutual desire to publish his work. And, and it was through publishing his work in their newspaper on a weekly basis that the idea came about that he would be collected into an, an edited collection um, of, of poetry. Um, and so you can see these two things having, like uh, dovetailing, having a mutual benefit. And I think a huge amount of what Anne does during her life is about that practical ability to dovetail ventures, whether it's writing a grammar that she can teach or it's producing a, a newspaper that she can use to promote the bookshop or whether you know whatever it is that she does and even down to writing educational books because you can see the educational books that she's producing um, um, could quite easily have been written to teach the young girls in her own home um, and then you know so they're tried and tested by the time they go to print because she's what she's actually doing is she's developing an educational um, um, philosophy in an educational program for her own daughters and then putting that in print and selling it um, and, that, you know, that's something that I haven't really talked about, about what really impresses me about Anne is her philosophy um, in terms of educational practice. Her, 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 her idea of education was actually very cutting edge. Um, and she really questioned the way in which grammar was taught, not just what kind of grammar. So she challenged the idea of the, the pedant and the... the the, the ostentatious intellectual male teacher who she suggested just was entirely incapable of opening little minds and of in, enticing them into learning and she she railed at the idea of using corporal punishment i mean how could how could you possibly awe someone into a love of learning that isn't how it works you know so she took a very lockheed approach in terms of um in, encouraging children to learn and you know the, the sorts of texts that she wrote um uh, i guess summarized by um, um her book the pleasing instructor which just in its title tells you what it is that she's aiming to do she wants education to be fun and if it's fun then it will engage young people and if they're engaged then they'll learn and she talks about um you know morality and goodness um, stealing into pe children's imagination silently, unseen, if you if you engage them and and you entertain them as you teach them, and you know these were quite quite radical ideas at the time. 
And, and she, she would she was successful with her daughter Sarah, wasn't she? Because after, didn't Sarah become the editor of the Chronicle for quite some time later? She's phenomenally successful. She's a very radical individual, and she was very outspoken about her politics. Um, and even when her sons come of age and and start to work in the business, she continues to print in her own name, and she actually produces the first. Um, edition of the Newcastle Society of Antiquaries um, journal um, is printed by Sarah Slack. It's one of the last things she does before she dies. So, you know, we can see that she, you know, Anne had evidently brought up a household of very determined and very capable young women. And, and Sarah, again, is a, an individual who has slipped through the records. She doesn't have her own entries in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography and the like because... She was just a little woman who helped in the print shop and quite evidently she was so much more than that. She was evidently a chip off her mother's or, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And edited the Chronicle for over 20 years. Yeah, yes, you know, and she, she edited the Chronicle, um, uh, uh, as you say, for more than, for more than 20 years. So, um, you know, this was, this was a serious individual who understood her trade um, only too well. I suppose Sarah and Anne would be an example of this kind of generational change that you're interested in or, or observing historical processes and change and so through generation. How, how would you summarise your, your approach to, to this approach? I initially stumbled upon Anne Fisher and because I wanted to understand generational distinction and I was looking to, to, to look for evidence of how children were brought up and what difference that might have made. And so if we think about Anne Fisher and her own daughters, particularly um, Sarah um, Slack or Hodgson, as she would become, um, I think we can see this, this generational dynamic playing out in real life. We have a generation in the middle of the 18th century living in provincial England who are um, quite... Uh, Anne Fisher being a really good example of this, people who are determined to demonstrate that they are as polite, as sophisticated, as civil as the, the metropolitan culture that's emanating from London. And so they're very definitely trying to demonstrate that their provincial culture is erudite, and it is. And they make a very good, um, um, they make a very good show of how erudite their culture is. Um, but they're very definitely taking a, a, an international, a global perspective on their um, desire to be part of this civilised global community, this international community, um, taking a lead in many respects from the cosmopolitanism that's emanating from London. Um, but Sarah and her, her generation, um, who were the, the, the children who benefited from the educational developments that Anne was so instrumental in, um, grew up with a huge self sense of self-confidence that maybe their parents' generation didn't have. You know, they were growing up in the shadow of this great London culture that they were trying to either emulate or um, improve upon or engage with. Um, whereas for their children's generation, they'd just grown up in a, in a literary, cultural place like Newcastle. They had nothing to prove to anybody else and they were far more comfortable with their, local, their sense of localism and their... Um, um, ideas of a, a local community and, and we can see this emerging in, in all sorts of contexts in that you know the the um, 
the the romantic movement and the interest in nature and and all and and, and the interest in in ancient history you know the interest in the the roman remains in in the newcastle area and the like all of these things become more evident during this generation's um youth because they are so much more comfortable in their own skin they're so much more comfortable with the notion of their indigenous sense of identity and that's not to say that they become closed to outsiders it's just to say that they no longer feel that there's something lacking in terms of you know it's it's not a, a second rate culture to be pr provincial in any way and and i think we can see this as a generational shift um but in a much broader sense, I think age really matters in terms of history in a way that we, we very easily overlook. You know, if we meet somebody today, um, you know, uh, if, if you see two people chatting and one's 18 and one's 80, you immediately notice their age and it has an impact on your understanding of the life they've lived, the experiences they've lived through, and therefore maybe some of the attitudes they might have. Um, you know, a, a perfect example would be, you know... Um, to new technology. You might assume that young people are, are quite au fait with, with, with new technologies, um, whereas somebody who grew up before the internet has, um, a, you know, it's an add-on to their life. It's not natural. It's not just an inherent part of who they are. And yet when, when we look back in, in the past, historians write about people and write about their relationships and their communications with each other and very often never even tell us how old these people are. So they might be talking about two people, uh, uh, you know, decades apart without even thinking that you know one of them lived through the american war of independence or the civil war or whatever and that's going to make a difference to, to who they are and how they feel but they also don't necessarily think about the difference between somebody's ideas when they're 18 and their ideas when they're 40 and their ideas when they're 80 so they'll conflate them all and talk about the person across several decades as though they had a static sense of self and i think if we add age and age relations into our interpretation of any element of the past, it forces us to remember that people didn't live in the past, they lived through the past, and that this is really important, that they, they grew and they took their childhood memories and their childhood habits with them, and that helped to form who they were as adults. And, and so we shouldn't hive off children to study separately, and we shouldn't hive off old people as irrelevant to society. Um, and, and we should bear in mind that people have a life cycle and, and it matters. Um, and I think, you know, that is initially what, what made me so interested in Anne. And because of that perspective, I actually, I, I feel as though I've uncovered huge elements of Newcastle society and Anne's life that I would never have thought about if I hadn't put age into the equation. We regularly talk about distinctions of gender or distinctions of class, but we don't think about distinctions of age, and yet that's the one social category that for a historian I feel should be most important because it's the one that has an inherent chronology. And as historians, we should be interested in chronological change. So then, Barbara, in the final analysis, would you say Anne Fisher belongs in the biographical? Most definitely. Um, I think she, she was one of the most important literary figures of the 18th century, as far as I'm concerned, and has just slipped through the gaps because of her gender. Um, in, a, in a letter of condolence written to her husband when she died in 1778, um, a family friend wrote, It is not only in the lesser circles of her domestic connections that Mrs Slack will be lamented. In her, the literary public has lost one of its highest female ornaments. 
Her distinguished character will be viewed and held sacred by all the sons and daughters of science, and she shall be respectfully mentioned to all succeeding generations. And you know, that's somebody who knew her and knew her importance. Um, and it's, it's one of the things that inspired me to want to do something to try and put her back on um, you know, our radar so that we were aware of this woman and her achievements. So it was one of the things that was really um, instrumental in terms of um, motivating me to campaign to have a Newcastle Memorial plaque um, that was unveiled in 2019 to mark the tercentenary of her birth. Um, and it's sited on the churchyard wall of St John's, which is the church that she would have sat in the pews of in the 18th century and where she was buried in, in the churchyard when she died. Um, and I think it's really important that we bring back to life the memories of, of women who've been forgotten because so often Newcastle um, seems to have been a place built on, on male efforts and, and you know male inventions and male buildings. And in actual fact, there were very often women there who were not just um, you know, their husband's helpmate, they were actually the driving force in, in changing society. And through an accident of, of archival recording, we somehow failed to remember their importance. So I do my bit um, um, in the hope that she will be respectfully mentioned to all succeeding generations. By separating into one biographicon, this peculiar class of lives, a philanthropic emulation would be excited. A debt of social gratitude would be discharged. A trophy to patriotism would be erected. And an instructive knowledge of the present state of nations and the gradual concatenation of intercourse would be diffused. Literature should rear altars to the missionaries of human civilization. <laughs>